Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach at the Naval Institute. Joining me is my usual co-host, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief and retired Navy Captain Intel Officer, Bill Hamlet. Bill, hello. Hey, Ward. Hello. Hello. It is a wonderful, amazing Friday, TGIF, here in Annapolis. Uh, We are recording the podcast this week on Friday for a couple of reasons. One was that the staff, uh, the proceeding staff, was uh, busy getting the May issue of proceedings, which is the Naval Review, which is always uh, almost twice as long as a regular uh, issue of proceedings, 168 pages versus uh, 96 pages. We're, we got that out and to the printers yesterday, so we're all excited to have that done. And our guest today uh, is a student nuclear power training unit. And uh, she was not available to get out of class uh, at the time on Wednesday that we normally uh, tape the podcast. So, so she's joining us on a Friday, and, it, and it's all good. Before we get to her, uh, I wanted to highlight a couple of things. Uh, as we mentioned last week, the annual meeting, the Naval Institute's annual meeting, is coming up on 2 May at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, on Rhode Island Avenue in Northwest D.C., same place that we hosted it last year. Uh, nice real estate downtown D.C., not too far uh, for those from coming from the Pentagon. It is a freebie. The chief of naval operations will be the keynote speaker. We will have uh, the, the presentations for the proceedings author of the year, the naval history author of the year, the press author of the year, and the three winners of the general prize essay contest for 2017. Uh, and... Uh, you know, free drinks and uh, and good food. So it's always a great event. And all, always good networking. You you run into a bunch of folks that uh, that matter in our space and and people that uh, uh, maybe in some cases haven't we haven't seen for a while. I will say, if you're taking metro, walking distance from uh, Dupont Circle uh, on the Red Line and uh, from Farragut West on the Orange Line. So. Uh, Come on out. We're going to have a good time. Yeah, it's a great great event. I think it starts at... Uh, five o'clock. Five o'clock. Yes. Five o'clock. Uh, other thing I wanted to mention is uh, we have coming up in the next couple of months the um, the due dates for three of our essay contests. So we have the Naval Intelligence Professionals Essay Contest. Uh, advertisement is in proceedings. The due date for that one is 31 July. We have the Cyber Essay Contest uh, sponsored by DXC Technology. That one is also at the end of July. And we've got the Coast Guard Essay Contest, uh, which I think the due date for that one is uh, at the end of June. So uh, three great essay contests, three opportunities for uh, enterprising people to write uh, you know, winning, winning articles uh, that will get published in proceedings. And the winner of each of those contests uh, walks away with a check for $5,000. So that's not chicken scratch. Um, so that, those are big things to come up for. Uh, if, you're, if you're thinking about writing, uh, check out those ads on our website uh, under Proceedings, Content, and Essay Contest, or find them in the latest uh, issue of Proceedings. Also, while we're on the subject of housekeeping, uh, we uh, invite everyone to check out the current issue of Naval History Magazine. Um, when you think of 6 June, we normally think of D-Day, but that is also the anniversary of the Battle of Bellu Wood. And um, this coverage that, that um, the team at Naval History has has created is, is really amazing. Um, I will tell you... The 100th anniversary of the Battle the of Bellu Wood. The 100th anniversary of the Battle of Bellu Wood. Uh, World War One generally lives in the shadow of World War Two in American uh, military history, um, but that's where the Marines uh, were first uh, christened with the name Devil Dogs. And uh, the the savagery of this battle is uh, is is pretty extreme, and the heroism uh, is is really really amazing. 
Um, so I, I will tell you, I read the article, but I also did a sort of a poor man's virtual sort of uh, look by bringing up Google Earth, going satellite view, and seeing where everything was oriented relative to everyone else. So um, that's a pretty cool way to read that story. What I will say surprised me is Bellow Wood itself is very small. It's a grove, a forest grove on a hill that's surrounded by open fields. And that's where the Marines really got hammered by machine guns as they approached Bellow Wood and other approaches to the east. There was a city and to the west there was another gun emplacement they had to take out before they made their um, attack on Bellow Wood the following day. So uh, I know this is the proceedings podcast and we mostly focus on proceedings, but if you're a member um, and not a subscriber to Naval History, uh, I'd invite you to check it out. It's just really, really, you know, it's in every other month magazine and the coverage is always amazing. They do a great job. And for Naval Institute members, the price of uh, Naval History subscription is $22 a year. Yeah. So it, it's a great bargain. It's a great bargain. Great bargain. Okay, so let's move to our guest. Uh, so this week we are interviewing Lieutenant J.G. Andrea Howard, U.S. Navy. Uh, she wrote for the proceedings, the uh, April issue of Proceedings, an article called Tactical Nuclear Weapons Are Back. Uh, Andrea Howard is a uh, 2015 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy. She was a Marshall Scholar uh, after for, for a couple of years after she uh, finished the academy, which meant she went to England and studied for a year at King's College and then a, a year at Oxford University. So, uh, Andrea, uh, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast, and uh, give us a quick weather update on uh, what's happening in Charleston, South Carolina. Well, thank you so much for having me. Things are good down here in, in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm currently attending the Navy's Nuclear Power Training Unit, which essentially prepares submariners and surface nuclear personnel to operate a nuclear reactor and its affiliated system. And then afterwards, I'm going to get to move on and serve aboard as an officer on one of the Navy submarines. Do you have a preference for fast attack or boomer? Oh, after my stint in England, I really won't complain in regards to where they send me. But if I did have my way, I think a fast attack out of Pearl sounds pretty nice. Very nice. Uh, our former colleague, Dave Adams, uh, who was on the preceding staff for about a year, uh, is now back in Pearl Harbor. But he was the commanding officer of the uh, USS Santa Fe base there and, and loved every minute of his command tour. So I have to if, if you get out there, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll do an introduction and get you uh, – uh, introed uh, to Dave Adams, who's uh, just just terrific. Um, so tell us a little bit about about the article that you've written about the issue of tactical nuclear weapons, uh, how the Chinese and Russians are, are bringing them back, and what you think it means for the U.S. and the U.S. Navy. Absolutely. I mean, I think a good starting place is to first distinguish tactical nuclear weapons from strategic nuclear weapons, um, just in case some of the listeners might not be familiar. Um, and so some scholars have distinguished the two of them based on a number of characteristics, including yield, delivery mechanism, or intended target. And I intend to focus on the latter, on intended target. So strategic weapons in that regard then would target large vital centers of population and industry and be more of a retaliatory strike to punish an adversary. Tactical nuclear weapons, on the other hand, though, would serve to deny an aggressor victory in military objectives. So they would have more of a countermeasure purpose in battle and generally then would have a lesser payload. So, in, in, in recent news, um, the Nuclear Posture Review for 2018 brought these, these weapons platforms, TNWs, back into the spotlight of WMD circles. But the foundation for their comeback really actually arose the year previous, in early 2017. 
In March of that year, the U.S. called out Russia for violating the, Interne- the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. And in that regard, Russia deployed this ground-launched cruise missile that defied the band range of 500 to 5,500 kilometers. So at the time, then, the United States was trying to, de- to debate um, how to respond, whether by pulling out of the treaty, igniting a new arms race, or doing nothing. And so for me, the discussions highlighted two things. One, there was a lack of a cohesive history about the development of tactical nuclear platforms. And two, I wanted to then do a summary of their current status and future development. Okay. So uh, I like your definition and, and the fact that you focused on the, the third aspect of that, of what a tactical, tactical nuclear weapon is, which is on the type of target it goes after. Uh, at the end of your article, you have a, a quote from Secretary of Defense Mattis, who says, uh, there's no such thing as a tactical nuclear weapon. Any nuclear weapon used at any time is a strategic game changer. So how do you uh, how do you balance that statement with uh, you know the the crux of your article? Right. So in in writing this article and focusing on tactical nuclear platforms, I was looking at it from more of the operation of defining these weapons by their capabilities. And so we can talk about a number of the developments that are going on with both the U.S. or some of our potential adversaries, be it Russia or China. But the the tone that I was trying to cite at, at the end of the article was was a bit more cautionary. And I think Secretary Mattis' statement is, is what captures that, is that it becomes really easy in these discussions to focus just on capabilities and potential lower thresholds for use without recognizing that there are real human costs and real strategic ramifications to employing such a weapon because there is no precedent for doing so. Yeah. Well, uh, let's say hi to Youssef in Dubai, who's uh, watching on Facebook. Hello, Youssef. Um, been to Dubai many times, great city, love the golf courses there. Uh, Andrew, if we can, let's sort of get the uh, unlearned listener uh, in the arena. You talk about offsets, which is sort of a way to define the history of nuclear warfare. Can you can you talk about what the various offsets are in, in, in sort of broad brush terms? Sure, absolutely. So, Traditionally, we speak of offsets in regard to three different stages. So there was a first offset, a second offset, and a third offset. And nuclear weapons have been very much so involved in each of these three stages. So in the first, which was a, a result of the end of the Second World War, uh, nuclear weapons provided the U.S. and President Eisenhower's NULIC strategy with more quotable, as, as we quote, kind of bang for the buck. So you could in turn then withdraw some conventional forces but still provide a strategic nuclear umbrella for allies um, with these tactical nuclear weapons platforms. The, the intention was to deter Russia from achieving a battlefield objective of using its massive Red Army to then go into Europe. So that was the first offset, right, the development of these bang-for-the-buck weapons. Well, then for the second offset, uh, some of our potential adversaries started catching up. So in the 70s and 80s, Russia started developing its own tactical nuclear weapons platforms. Um, but the U.S. then countered by, focus more, by focusing more on developing conventional precision strike weapons, so with laser targeting or GPS. And then the first Gulf War in the 1990s was an opportunity for the U.S. to showcase those platforms. And compiled with the collapse of the USSR, the U.S. then, because it had this conventional advantage, was able really in the second offset to really harp on those conventional platforms and then uh, sort of get rid of some of these older tactical nuclear weapons platforms. And as a goodwill gesture with the collapse of the USSR, 
we saw the presidential nuclear initiatives um, with George H.W. Bush, and he fulfilled his part of the U.S. obligation by getting rid of some of these ground launch, short-range tactical nuclear weapons, and this is when we first saw the removal of tactical nuclear weapons from Navy ships and attacks on Marines. So that leads us back to today, where we have, again, the rise of these potential new adversaries. And so the third offset is us focusing on integrating more autonomous systems, machine learning technologies into weapons platforms. And so it's of note, there's kind of this really unique opportunity then to potentially develop tactical nuclear weapons because they, they fall beneath the threshold for the START treaties, and they're not fully governed by the, the range constraints of the international, uh, I'm sorry, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. And so with that in mind, um, you have the first offset of the bang for the buck, the second offset of rising conventional capabilities for the U.S., and now the third offset of new technologies, and with that, the potential to make smarter, more effective tactical nuclear weapons. Got it. Thank you. Hey, um about a year ago, we published a piece by Dr. Mark Schneider in uh, Proceedings mm-hmm. uh, that was that focused on the the well. There were, his article when it first came to us was about the um, uh, status six, the 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 news surrounding the the uh, Kremlin's announcement that they had this long range, high speed, autonomous. Uh, torpedo with a megaton size uh, warhead that could attack enemy ports and cities. Uh, and but is what we asked him to refocus his article on. Uh, it was in I think the April issue of uh, Proceedings last year. Uh, we asked him to refocus on the fact that the Russians were bringing back tactical nuclear weapons and changing and modifying their military strategy and their tactics to to incorporate um, warfighting ideas uh, for around nac- uh, nuclear weapons. And they, they use the term escalate to de-escalate. And that was news. We knew that it was going to be news to most of our readers who, you know, as, as you pointed out, uh, since the end of the Cold War, the U.S. Navy, the U.S. military has largely been uh, getting rid of and um, you know, limiting its uh, its stockpile of tactical nuclear weapons, you know, taking the, the tactical tomahawk off the Navy ships, et cetera. And Ward and I were in the Navy at that time, remember it well. Um, and so suddenly, you know, against the background of, uh, you know, U.S. involvement in the Middle East and ISIL and all these things, uh, kind of out of the news or quietly, uh, the Russians have been, you know, building back up their nuclear, their tactical nuclear arsenal and, and thinking and writing and publishing about how they can use tactical nukes in a conventional war to escalate in order to stop a conflict or de-escalate a conflict. So uh, tell us what you know about that and and how that influences the ideas in your paper. Absolutely. So I didn't really even touch on on Russian intentions in regards to tactical nuclear weapons because that could be a whole PhD in and of itself. But With that, um, there's always a lot of misconception in U.S. nuclear circles about what it is that that defines Russian nuclear strategy. And so, yes, there is the term escalate escalate to de-escalate, but Russian scholars are more focused on the fact that that seems to have been bred within the U.S. And so in looking at Russian intentions and specifically with redeveloping these platforms, if you look at uh, President Putin's uh, Federation speech, kind of State of the Federation speech in March, and almost seem to be more of a response, not just to our own nuclear posture view, but almost more to their consi- consistent ongoing focus on our um, ballistic missile defenses and missile defenses in general. 
Um, the Russians really see tactical nuclear weapons, in my opinion, as a means to continually, continually challenge U.S. missile defenses, which have been at the forefront of their defensive thinking since, you know, uh, NATO expansion and since the U.S. withdrawal withdrew from the uh, ballistic missile treaty. Gotcha. That's a really good point about Russia's view about ballistic missile defense. Uh, I was a naval attache in Russia in the, in the mid-2000s, and I remember many, many Russians uh, telling me that uh, the, the, the uh, ballistic missile defenses we were contemplating at the time, putting in uh, Poland and Romania, were that they knew that they were really about Russian uh, ballistic missiles. And I would say, no, they're about Iran. They're about the... Uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, the Iranian nuclear threat, the Iranian ballistic missile defense or ballistic missile program, uh, that's what we're concerned about. We're not concerned about, uh, you know, uh, Russian ICBMs. And, and the Russians were convinced that that was not true. So it, it's an interesting point you make. Absolutely. And I, I just think to, to further touch on that, um, so much of these discussions are about posture. I mean, the nuclear posture review is called that. It's, it's about posture and it's a review and it's sort of a nuclear w- wish list. And similarly, from the Russian side, what they say about their developments, be it the status six, like you mentioned, or the Sarmat, or the, the cruise missiles that they're launching from submarines in Syria, um, so much of, of it is about posturing. And so, like I said, I think a lot of it's focused on missile defense for the Russians. Um, and for the U.S., though, the notion that we could potentially use these new tactical nuclear weapons as a bargaining chip to then get the Russians to curb their own tactical nuclear development is a bit off for me, and I don't quite buy it. And I think part of it is because I think that using missile defense as a bargaining chip would be a much more viable and effective option. So, so Yousef on uh, Facebook Live uh, puts a finer point on what you were saying, Billy. says, America was busy with fighting the war against global terrorism, where Russia was modernizing their strategic tactical nuclear force. That's a good thought, Yousef. Thank you. Um, As was China. Uh, Roger that. Exactly what you, you were right. saying. Um, so, Andrea, in the beginning of the article, you talk about uh, the, uh, when you say NPR, you know, I'm always thinking of National Public Radio, but in this context, right. it's the Nuclear Posture Review, and then l- later you... Uh, as and Bill and I have talked a number of times with various guests about the defense budget um, and, you know, the current uh, NDAA. Or, uh, and, and so you, you go into some nice detail here, and I had no idea um, how many, uh, and it, it, so, it sounds a little bit insouciant to say dial a yield gravity bombs, right? Uh, um, like that's some sort of, sort, of, sort of thing that you just like, hey, and, and they, they go between, um, what do we have here? You say point... Um, where was that de- detail? Some uh, point something it's, um, to point three point three to one hundred seventy kilotons. Yeah, there you go. Point three yeah. to one hundred seventy kilotons is the the dial of yield. We have five hundred B sixty one type bombs, but what what struck me about the the uh, nuclear posture uh, review uh, is it proposes spending roughly two trillion over the next thirty years. So when you add this to this plussed up budget. Um, you know, considerably plussed up year over year from roughly 600 to 724 billion for the annual defense budget. Then we're, and this includes a shipbuilding program that's supposed to get us to 355 by 2050. And Mm -hmm. now we're talking about uh, sort of uh, recapitalizing our nuclear arsenal, um, $2 trillion over the next 30 years. And you go into, I won't, 
read, I entreat everyone to look at the numbers that, that Andrea puts in here. It's really, really cool. Um, so is, is that enough, do you think? Is that, that seems like a huge number to me, and it seems like it's going to take a long time. Right. So it seems like uh, quite a lot, and it is quite a lot. And again, you have to view these nuclear posture reviews as wish lists, and their historical development actually revolved around um, Congress's putting off focusing on, on nuclear weapons budgets in the hopes of getting a, a president that would actually align with their party. So um, they first started with the Clinton administration, but then since then they've been sort of this delayed, delaying tactic. And then when a new administration comes in, they become more of a, a, a nuclear wish list for that administration. So keeping that in mind, though, um, that budget also includes some platforms that I, that I think are necessary, uh, like the Columbia-class submarines, and I hope I can potentially serve on one of those someday. But I, I was trying to subtly hint in this article that I actually disagree with the inclusion of this low-yield warhead for the Trident D-5 um, submarine-launched ballistic missiles and with the new sea-launched cruise missile that could potentially be introduced. And um, there's kind of a three-phase approach that I, that I take to that, be it the first being kind of like planning construction and the cost there, then the operational dangers, and third, the implications for the future of arms control. But in regards to the, impl- the implications of the NPR for the Navy, um, kind of a, an interesting narrative is to look back at the Rumsfeld Department of Defense because he continually, year after year, warned the Navy to start preparing for the reintroduction of tactical nuclear weapons and the way the Navy dealt with that because it didn't really want to devote cost to that specific type of platform was by just really slow rolling the study on how it would do so. And it just kind of died out year after year after year. And so uh, if the Navy was actually kind of tasked with carrying out this task today and, and didn't necessarily want to do so, it could probably effectively kill it in the bureaucratic red tape. So I was a Tomcat guy. We, we didn't go anywhere new, near nukes. Um, but I, and I don't know this for a fact because it was very much a hush-hush program, but I think the A6s in our air wing had nuclear delivery capability. I know that back in the 60s that A4s had nuclear delivery capability. A7s, F18s, A6s. Okay. Yeah, so your straight stick attack platforms um, because the Tomcat was late to that game. Um, and obviously, if you're going to have that capability, the infrastructure required, um, you know, because uh, you know custodial and all the other things um, are, is pretty intense. Yeah. Um, so I'm not going to complain about not having that capability on the F-14. Right. Uh, but you also mentioned this was another thing that grabbed my eye. The F-35 could have this capability as well. Yes, and I and I don't know how much of a viable option that really is. But in some of the the resources and discussions that I saw as I was trying to write this article, um, yeah, the notion of extending this nuclear aerial delivery delivery capability to the F-35C variety um, could be another means of delivering like a more neighborly deterrent. So putting some of these air-launched missiles, especially like the, the long-range standoff missile that's under developing on these planes, um, could be a, another means of, of delivery and without necessarily then having to station these weapons in allied countries. Yeah, hey, uh, we have a, there's a picture with your article uh, on page 52 that shows a, uh, a Trident uh, SLBM um, missile launching out of the water. And, and the, the caption says, the Nuclear Posture Review proposes interim deployment of a new low-yield W76 Mod 2 warhead for the Trident right. 2 D5. And you just mentioned, you just said, 
that in your mind you think that that might not be the greatest idea. So, so tell us a little bit about that. You're thinking on why, okay. you know, why putting a, a low yield nuke on a, on a D five is, you know, could be a mistake. Okay. So just from a little bit of a theory perspective, at least at first. So when I first started really researching these platforms, um, I kind of was an adherent to Herman Kahn's ladder of escalation. Um, and so those are unfamiliar. It's, it's a way of thinking of conflict as a number of rungs on a ladder, and you would then effectively want as many rungs as possible in your own ladder such that you could control the rate at which the, the conflict escalates. And so you, by having these tactical nuclear weapons, could then respond in time if Russia were to deploy these tactical nuclear weapons. You could move up and down. So the issue that I take with putting a low-yield warhead on the Trident D5 is because it it, it sort of confounds what way we are moving on the ladder of escalation in a potential future conflict. Um, and some people argue that we already do that already because it's unclear how many actual warheads are on these missiles. Um, but regardless, the way that I view ballistic missile submarines is kind of in this uh, almost sacrosanct manner. If, if an adversary sees that we fire off a missile from a, a, a ballistic missile submarine, then it means that we are most likely retaliating for something. And it's a very clear, decisive action in, in an escalating conflict. And I hope that the world never comes to that. But if it does, there's pretty much no, no variability in interpretation in that missile being fired. Right. And they're now, gonna, if you're going to see going a... to introduce these. I was just going to say, if you're going to introduce lower yield warheads onto these missiles and potentially use them in more battlefield manners and a more tactical manner, then that invites uh, what Vipin Narang has quoted um, as the, the discrimination problem. We're just confounding where we exactly are on the ladder for our adversaries, which can be good, I think, with conventional platforms at times, but that's not a game that I would want to play with ballistic missile submarines. Yeah, because when you when the adversary who will see ballistic missiles coming, whether it's China, Russia, or anybody else, right? So this right. is this is a a large weapon going into the uh, you know exo atmosphere. Uh, they all have radar systems and early detection you know um, measures in space to see these things coming, uh, and and they can't tell whether it's got a megaton weapon, a hundred kiloton weapon, or a you know, a three kiloton weapon or, or less. Right. And so as an adversary, you, you kind of have to assume the worst. And so does that mean it's time for you to launch what you have back? Is it time to retaliate or is it time to use your ballistic missile defenses or, yeah, I, I think you have a good point about that. Uh, the escalation ladder and, and that you're, you're, you're probably, you may be skipping steps on that ladder by doing that. Right. Absolutely. Interesting. So how is nuke power school? so far i've really actually enjoyed it there are days obviously where I, I come home and my head hurts a little bit but um we have a truly remarkable nuclear program and the fact that people like me who come from these very interdisciplinary backgrounds be it music in some in some cases or english or political science have the opportunity to come and, and learn nuclear power and we also take some of the best engineering talent from around the nation and this pipeline this training pipeline both the academic portion that i just completed six months previous and the nuclear power training unit that i'm attending now are world class and it is incredible to have the opportunity now to to go on to these more training ships that we have and to start playing around 
with some of these different systems. And I'm so excited to serve in this community and have so much respect for it, having been through this pipeline. And it's incredible to get to be still one of those, one of the first women to, to be a part of this platform. That's very cool. Um, what was your major at the Naval Academy? Um, I double majored in Arabic and political science. Hua. <laughs> We're both poli sci majors. <laughs> All right. Exactly. There's, a, there's a future for us. Yeah. There, yeah. I can't wait. Um, so you, we you, can be engineers too, you know. I like it. I don't know. You didn't you, see you, my. Uh, you can. My diffy cues and boats grades were, <laughs> would prove that that's not quite true. Yeah. So I showed up as a plebe, right? And I'm like, oh, I want to be a naval architect. Um, and right. I, I validated two semesters of French. And they're like, yeah, guess what? You're not going to be. <laughs> you know. Um, so you, you mentioned that you're one of the first females to go into uh, the, the submarine force. What do you so? How many are ahead of you, and what are you hearing anecdotally uh, from those folks uh, about how it's going? Really, on the, on the most part, super positive experiences. Um, so my class of 2015 from the academy would have been the sixth class to start allowing women to go to nuclear power training. Um, but by going to grad school, I effectively then am in the, the, the eighth class of women to cycle through and so you mean yeah, the eighth class of, of submarine school, not the eighth class of the Naval um, in Academy? In terms of like academic year. No, in oh. terms of like academic year from okay. the Naval Academy. So oh, okay, um, okay. in nuclear, for, for actual numbers, I'm assuming I'm still in the group of probably the first 150 officers um, or so. And in the next few months or so, they might start allowing junior enlisted from the unit I'm at currently to, to select these these uh, submarine billets, and so I'm trying to convince as many of these enlisted uh, women to potentially pursue that path and be in that very first wave for them. Um, and yeah, you asked about the experiences that girls are having, and like I think it probably was very much the same with integration of the surface fleet. As long as these girls are doing their jobs and being proficient members of the team, then their presence is really appreciated. And I've heard too from some of the, the guys that I've chatted with that having women there, of course, you know, brings on a different mood, which has its benefits and drawbacks, but ultimately it actually really normalizes the environment of being in a submarine by having dual gender crews. Yeah. I, my experience, I, I served in male only for my first four deployments. Um, and then my, my fifth one, um, I was the air wing ops officer, and we had a, uh, a gender-integrated air wing staff. And then some of the squadrons, not all of the squadrons, were gender-integrated. And uh, I think you, you capture it correctly there in terms of what you petition to make it work. Um, it's, it's, you know, you got to have competent female officers, as you know, as uh, going through the Naval Academy. Um, uh, you know, the, your, 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 your professionalism and your competence is, uh, is highly leveraged, and that becomes a great equalizer. Um, from what we hear of you on the show, I don't think that's going to be an issue at all um, because I, you strike us as a person who's highly competent. Um, and the rest is just sort of the, the, the intangibles, if you will. Um, so, um, you know, it, it, good, good luck to you with that. Um, you know, I, I shudder to think that somehow because of the arbitrary um, matrix of gender that we you know, somebody like her would not be able to be in the submarine force. No, you know, that that ab- just sort absolutely of, right. as the old guy here. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Well, right? you, you know? know, the USNI News had a story. I think it was just yesterday or the day before about how the submarine community is 
actively recruiting women into uh, nuclear power now because, yeah. uh, and I think Dave Adams would uh, would echo this. He commanded USS Georgia after Santa Fe, and he had women on Georgia, and he said they were fantastic. Yeah, women officers on Georgia. So, um, yeah. well, we have to uh, wrap this up. Um, but uh, Andrea, this was a great conversation. Thanks for joining us, and uh, you've you've thank given, you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a beautiful sunny day, but you've also I think given uh, two old graybeards uh, <laughs> some some uh, uh, you know optimism uh, that that articulate smart young uh, officers are are going ahead into the future and uh, you know just doing incredible things. As we we were reading your article or rereading it before we uh, before you dialed in. And uh, and Ward said, "Man, this is a powerful article. This is like serious." And I said, "Yeah." yeah. When I was a JG, I was incapable of this sort of uh, you know <laughs> this sort of writing. Um, so thanks for using the independent forum, Andrea. Tell a friend. Um, you know Thank the, you. The, the 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 Naval Institute's only as healthy as your willingness to to use the forum. Um, I don't know if you know, but the founder of the Naval Institute was Admiral Warden of Warden Field fame. You know, brush up on your yard gas. Okay. Um, so I I, rem- I knew that, but I'd forgotten it. So when I got back on the team about a year ago um, and uh, and started to make myself smart on the history as a function of my outreach job, um, I, I was uh, uh, marveled at the early days of the Naval Institute. Um, and so it's it's really heartening, as Bill said, for, for us to see a J.O. like yourself using the forum in its intended way. So thanks for that. Um, uh, good would, luck to you. We're very proud of what you're doing, and, and we're excited to, to hear how it goes from here. So keep us posted on that, and uh, we look forward to your next submission. Yeah, and if you haven't you. if you haven't tried writing for one of our essay contests, I'm telling you, you have a very good chance of winning one. Uh, and, and they are... Uh, they're judged in the blind. Uh, we do about 10 or 11 a year, and uh, that the entry uh, information is in proceedings, and it's on our website. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, there's three three coming up, although you're probably not going to write for the With her Coast massive Guard amounts one. of free time. Yeah, massive uh, amounts she of free time. Well, nuclear power school. She's, she's, making the nuke, she's, power school. she's making nuke school sound yeah. easy. You oh, know? I know, she's right. Got, a good disposition. She's sunny and upbeat, you know, sure. Um, but anyway, sometime in the future, write for a contest because uh, it, it's a great, it's a, you know, it's great to get recognized, uh, not just in proceedings, but as a, as a, as a prize winner and the, the prize money, I know you're getting nuke bonus and all that stuff, but the prize money is, it's not, it's not insignificant. Who can't so. use a couple thousand bucks, I, right? I know I could. Yeah. But your first order of business, Absolutely. your first standing order is to socialize the forum and the Naval Institute. There you go. Like it. Can do. Yeah, it's a pleasure thanks. to just be involved and looking forward to working with you guys in the future. Beautiful. Awesome. Thank you. Well, uh, that wraps up the 26th episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Happy Friday to everybody. And don't forget, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. Mm-hmm.